Welcome to the VetoCast, a podcast of six episodes that explores the effects of the veto power of the United Nations Security Council. VetoCast is part of the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign that is committed to changing the way the Security Council veto is used. In the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide and the Kosovo War, a number of issues were raised on the practice of international politics. In both cases, the UN had failed to take action to stop atrocities that were perpetrated within a state. The inaction was partly caused by the restrictions posed by the principle of a state's right to sovereignty. There seemed to be a clash between the two principles of humanitarian intervention and state sovereignty. Kofi Annan, who was the Secretary General of the time, expressed the issue as, if humanitarian intervention is indeed an unacceptable assault on sovereignty, how should we respond to a Rwanda, to a Srebrenica, to gross and systematic violations of human rights that affect every precept of our common humanity? To explore a solution to this problem, an ad hoc committee was founded under the authority of the Canadian government in the year 2000. The committee, known as the ICISS, was led by the Australian policymaker Gareth Evans and the Algerian diplomat Mohamed Sanoun. The result of this work was released as a report of the following year, named The Responsibility to Protect, which reinterpreted the meaning of sovereignty. The report argued that a state's sovereignty not only meant rights to sovereignty, but also a responsibility to protect its citizens from major violations of human rights. And if a state was unable or unwilling to protect its citizens, the responsibility to protect the people should shift towards the international community. But the report also emphasised that any form of military intervention is an exceptional and extraordinary measure, and that a justifiable military intervention had to meet certain criteria. Ryan D'Souza is the advocacy officer for the Global Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. The responsibility to protect was kind of born after the failures of the international community um, when it was uh, failed to act uh, to stop the genocides in Rwanda in 1994 and Srebrenica a year later. Um, And Kofi Annan said we needed to have a new way of how we viewed sovereignty. Uh, Sovereignty should not be a license to kill your own population. It should be a responsibility of the rulers to protect their own people. So in 2005, at the UN World Summit, the largest gathering of heads in state, uh, the world unanimously adopted the responsibility to protect. The responsibility to protect R2P is about four crimes and three pillars. It is about preventing and halting the commission of mass atrocity crimes, as I mentioned earlier, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. It works through a three-pillar framework. The first pillar is about the primary responsibility of each state to protect their own populations. The second pillar stipulates that the international community should as a role in assisting states in exercising that responsibility by building their protective uh, protection capacities before crises and conflicts break out. However, when a state is manifestly failing to protect their population, the third pillar allows for timely and decisive action using coercive and non-coercive measures to protect civilians. 
Um, with regards to Syria, I mean, I was I remember when I was living in, in Lebanon um, about five or six years ago, before the conflict in Syria broke out, I used to travel to Syria very often. I remember speaking to Syrians about the Hama massacre, which took place in 1982, and essentially it was when Hafez al-Assad, um, the, current, uh, the father of the current president, Bashar, he slaughtered thousands of Syrians, and the world, the world stood silent. It didn't offer any kind of statements, there wasn't a general assembly resolution, there wasn't any action from the Security Council, because they all viewed this as a sovereign affair. However, it's interesting for me, at the start of the Syrian conflict, we saw a shift in how the world responded. Um, the world spoke out against Brussels and deadly crackdown. We saw GA resolutions, sorry, general assembly resolutions passed. We saw commissions of inquiries established. In fact, I remember there's actually over 150 states spoke out about the Syrian conflict at the last opening of the General Assembly. Uh, we saw the world speak out of the need to stop the commission of these atrocity crimes. What we didn't see was the UN Security Council speaking with one voice. Uh, it's a failure of the council to act which allowed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians to die. This is where the principle of R2P is today. But it's an ever-growing and highly current concept. One of the more recent conflicts that's been discussed in context to R2P is Syria. 2011 was the year of the Arab Spring. A wave of protests and political reform seemed to sweep through the oppressed countries in the Arab world. In some countries, it resulted in democratization, such as Tunisia, while in others it led to political instability. In some countries, it led to civil war or internal conflict. And in the case of Libya, the UN decided to intervene with the adoption of Resolution 1973, which formed a legal basis for an intervention from NATO. In the case of Syria, the outcome was different. In March 2011, widespread protests began in Syria, initially demanding political reform and the release of political prisoners. The Syrian government responded violently by shooting at the crowds, which led to civil unrest and further protests. In April, the government started attacking villages with artillery and tanks, killing hundreds of civilians. Armed resistance began in July in the town Jasir al-Sugra, after security forces had begun shooting at a funeral procession from a post office roof. This led civilians to set fire to the post office, killing the eight officers and then storming the local police station and arming themselves. This made other civilians take up arms, as well as Syrian soldiers defecting to the protesters' side. By the end of July, around 1,600 civilians and 500 security forces had been killed. 13,000 people had been arrested, many of whom were students, human rights advocates and liberal activists. Several insurgent groups were later formed with the goal of bringing down the Syrian government. The death toll varies. But the UN's latest study, from August 2014, concludes that at least 191,000 people have been killed since the start of the conflict. Since the outbreak of the civil war, there's been international pressure on the UN to act. As the conflict affects the civilian population, which is targeted by both the Syrian government troops as well as insurgents fighting the government, it seems like a clear case for intervention based on R2P. The Security Council has remained divided regarding Syria, and several resolutions have been drafted during this time. One crucial resolution regarding stopping the use and disposing of chemical weapons was adopted on the 7th of September 2013. A resolution in July of 2014 regarded access for humanitarian agencies as well as ceasefires in heavily populated areas. But intervention beyond that has been shut down. 
The veto has been used four times on resolution drafts regarding Syria since the conflict began. All four times by the Russian Federation and China. My name is Qais Faris. I'm a Syrian journalist and I'm a student at Lund University. I'm studying human ecology on a master's degree level. The, the third time uh, Syria's file was referred to the UN uh, was in July of 2012. And at that time we, we were so, um, how to say, I mean, me personally was, was like, why are they doing this? Why? If you know that the Russians will and the Chinese will just veto everything you put in front of them, why why would you go for that? That's not useful for for the Syrian people or for the Syrian protesters at least. In August of 2013, the chemi chemical weapons were used against um, Syrian civilians, and reports, media reports, talked about the death of around 1,500 civilians, including children, in the suburb of Ghouta, east of Damascus. And that, had, that, was, that was a turning point. So um, the attack on, on Ghouta and the attack on, on um, a suburb called Khan al-Asal uh, in Aleppo in, in March of 2013. Uh, so far, no one confirmed, even the UN, which sent um, missions in order to examine uh, the, the, the sites where the chemical weapons were used, but no one so far has confirmed who did this. I was in Syria until June to, of 2012. I have accompanied the UN observers to several areas in Syria, and I have seen the destruction with my eyes. My city itself, called Zabadani, uh, has been grounded. I was a journalist uh, between 2007 and 2012 in Syria, and I haven't done my military service. It was difficult to keep going uh, or keep working under the, the, the circumstances uh, at that time. Checkpoints were deployed in, in the city which I was in, and at any point I could have been drafted to the uh, military service. I was very careful with that. For one year and a half, I was arrested once. I was summoned for interrogation several times. The, the, the main problem or, or the incident that made me leave the country was when I accompanied the uh, UN observers um, around the country. So I was able to freely move, uh, relatively speaking, freely move around the country as long as I, am, I was accompanying them. A chance which I didn't have uh, before them coming to Syria, before April 2012. Uh, seeing people protesting in front of the UN observers was always a scary thing for me because I knew that when the observers would leave the, the place, leave the site, uh, a massacre will take, will take place. And that was what usually had happened. All the cities which I have been to witnessed huge protests against the regime in front of the UN observers. Uh, and the moment the UN observers leave, the army just starts its aggression. Now you ask me how do I verify that I am from the country and I have many friends in the cities I have been to. And of course the uh, local citizen journalists or activists, call them whatever you want, did a great job by documenting every single uh, protest that took place.
Hans Karel, Swedish lawyer and diplomat, former Undersecretary General for Legal Affairs and the Legal Council of the United Nations. But I think that what is lacking here is actually that you have to prevent conflict. And this is the first step when you exercise responsibility to protect. If the Council demonstrated that it is prepared to intervene forcefully in a situation where the borderline a certain borderline is drawn when the head of state or the warlord is starting killing women and children using military equipment or even gas and these kind of things, then the council should say, then we will join hands, all of us, all 15, and we will come after you. If they demonstrated that one or two or three times in a situation where this is necessary, I think the whole world would change because the dictators and the warlords would understand that I'd better behave in a different manner, otherwise they will come after me. I think it is very important to start from a court in order to start a peaceful and just process, just and, and political process in Syria. Uh, you need to fulfill, to achieve justice. And justice can be achieved by such international courts. It won't be achieved uh, by courts such as ISIS and, and, um, and, and courts like the Syrian government's uh, courts today. It is important to refer Syrian, Syria's case to an international court because all sides should know that we are living in a civilized world. We are not living in a forest. But I see Syria as a symptom of what I've talked about, a symptom of, of the fact that the Security Council, the permanent five members, have not been able to signal to the world that if you pass a certain borderline, we will come after you. And everybody is looking at Syria. I'm sadly looking around the horizon for the next Syria, because there will be a next Syria until the Council realize that they have to send a signal that is enough of this now. You have to stop these kind of conflicts. The responsibility to protect remains a concept under development. The biggest challenge for R2P today is its implementation in the real world, in occurring conflicts today and conflicts to come in the future. From concept to reality, the responsibility to protect can be a valuable resource for the Security Council. When a need for intervention is apparent and special interests from other parties gets in the way, the responsibility to protect offers swift political action. The case of the Syrian war clearly shows that a change is needed, a reformation in how the veto power is used today by the P5 that's more in line with how it was intended to be used. An implementation of R2P in the Security Council's decision-making could be that change. A reformation of the use of the veto power is therefore a change to ensure global security and a change for a more peaceful and secure future. A change that can take us one step closer to ending the war in Syria. You have listened to The VetoCast, a podcast of six episodes that explores the effects of the veto power of the United Nations Security Council. VetoCast is part of the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign, which is committed to changing the way the Security Council's veto is used. VetoCast is a co-production by the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes organization and Uppsala Student Radio 98.9. Project manager for VetoCast was Joanna Hellstrom. Production and audio editing by Simon Sander. 
Scripts by Alexander Friedman. Interviews by Joanna Hellstrom and Philip Alborn. This production was narrated by Leila Mendy. Our thanks to Daniel Schellen and Hannah Wernerschun and the rest of the team behind the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign. It is our world and the global challenges are of everyone's concern. For peace and prosperity, we need an efficient UN. For more information, visit our webpage at www.stopillegitimatevetoes.org and our Facebook page. Let's stop illegitimate vetoes.